This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's uh, so great to be worshiping with you. If you're new to Trinity, this summer we have been walking through the Psalms, so a summer in the Psalms, and this morning we find ourselves at Psalm 69. As you turn there in your Bible, I just want to begin with some words of introduction. Do you remember the scandal that took place at Penn State's football program several years ago? So Coach Sandusky uh, was indicted for abusing children in his charity, which is just Awful, awful, awful. But that pain was even compounded because it turns out that someone actually had found out about it years before, reported it, and that the school systematically failed to deal with the abuse in an attempt to preserve the university's image. And then one journalist wrote this, by working so hard to preserve Penn State's public image, the administration allowed it to rot in the inside. Those are harrowing words. And it makes me think about us, honestly, for this reason. We're all going to church. We participate in our Bible studies. We are active in our civic organizations. We do all the things outwardly that look just fine. And yet there is a real risk that we are rotting on the inside. Our, our internal lives are enslaved to greed and worry and fear and image. And it's leading us into despair. It's leading us into hopelessness. And because we feel hopeless, our prayers and our inner lives become very mechanical, right? We, we, we kind of pray and go through the actions as if God is not listening, The Psalms, though, they meet us there. And the Psalms are these songs, these lyrics that help us to say words that our hearts are not used to saying. God gives us words to keep our inner lives from rotting, from despair, and from hopelessness. And so today, in Psalm 69, the poet, the psalmist, is going to give us words of anger and words of pain, pain and anger. And let me just say, this could not be more timely for us. Because as a nation, aren't we just sad and angry, right? Aren't we just hurt? And we're so angry and hurt, and we don't, we do not know what to do with this, right? So sometimes what we do is we just stuff it, right? Because we live under the pretense that good Christians are just above it and we super spiritualize it. Nothing can touch us. We just stuff. Or on the other hand, we recklessly express it and and we hurt people by vomiting out our pain. And we go down this inescapable pit of victimization. Why? Because hurt people hurt people. And both of those options, both of those paths lead to the rotting of our inner lives. Psalm 69 is going to really help us. It's going to really meet us there. Now, let me just give us a strategy for reading it, and then we're going to get to the text. 
David is the poet, and if you'll remember, he writes as the ideal Israelite. He is um, a model of sorts. And so Psalm 69 comes to us almost like his personal prayer journal. And it's, and it's helpful to apply his words in ways that are analogous to our contemporary lives. And, and let me just say, it's really um, in God's providence and a real sweet gift that we're studying Psalm 69. Because Psalm 69 has been such a comfort and a resource for our black brothers and sisters, for African-American churches, and not just for decades, but for centuries. And so we get to actually peek into this resource that has been such a balm of helping the inner lives of so many people in our black communities. It's beautiful. But there's another way that we're going to see Psalm 69 meet us. It's that Psalm 69 is pointing us to Jesus, that he's actually the fulfillment of Psalm 69. And in fact, when you get to the New Testament, Psalm 69 is quoted over 20 times. They seem to think that it is describing Jesus's life, that it's describing Jesus's inner life. And so we get to actually know Jesus through Psalm 69. So as we read the lyrics to Psalm 69, let's, um, if you're a note taker, we're just going to look at the poet's pain, and then we're going to look at the poet's anger. So pain and then anger. Now Psalm 69 is 40 verses. We're not going to read all of it. We're just going to read a portion of it. So please stay with me. Let's begin now in verse 1. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with, with my crying out and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, and dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I have wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. I'm now in verse 19. My foes are all known to you. Verse 20. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. 
Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And that concludes the reading of God's word, a portion from Psalm 69. The grass withers, the flowers fade, not God's word. It endures forever. May bless it for you and for me. Amen. So this psalm begins with uh, lyrics that show a whole range of emotions, doesn't it? And the main word to summarize all of them is lament. And now lament is an extremely important theological category. A lament is when you really just cry out to God. And sometimes when you're doing it, sparks are flying, but you let it go. You unleash the pain and you show your sadness and your indignation. And it's, and it's raw and it's vulnerable. And some of it, sometimes because if it's a little bit raw, some people might be inclined to think that it's disrespectful. It's not. It's ordained. It's actually put into God's word for us. Here's why. Lament is not complaining. Complaining is gossip about God. That's not what's happening. Lament is crying to God. See, lament takes faith. See, it actually proves that you are trusting God. It proves that you believe that he's listening to your cries. Because otherwise, wouldn't you just stay silent? See, God loves hearing our unedited hearts. And this is exactly what you get from Psalm 69. See, he begins by speaking as if he's literally sinking. I mean, floodwaters are coming up to his neck. Look there, verse 1 and 2. He says, save me. Oh God, the waters have come up to my neck. Verse 2, I'm sinking in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and this flood is just sweeping over me. I'm I'm sucking in water and, and, and barfing it out is so hard. And, and, and he's crying out for help. He's been doing it for so long. No one's responding. His mouth is dry. Verse 3. He says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. He's so exhausted even. And he is on the brink of not looking out for God anymore. Verse 3. My eyes have grown dim with waiting for my God. He is sinking into sadness. See, what we have here is a man who is vulnerable. And he can't shrug off the slander and the betrayal. It, it hurts so bad. And as we see, it's, not, it's people, insiders, people in his family, guys on the inside who have betrayed him. And he's sinking. And he, and he can't just forget about it. He's losing sleep. He can't turn off his heart. He wish he could, but he can't because his heart is breaking. And then, of course, this pain comes to a climax in verse 4 when he says, More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? He says, There is no justice. So David, the poet, he says, 
there's more enemies, right? Than hairs on his head. And they're not ordinary ones. They're, they're people that he thought were friends. In his, they're his people. And the enemies, man, they're even turning his, his, these signs of devout mourning into an occasion of mockery. Look there at verse 10 and 11. Look at the language of fasting and sackcloth. He says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. And when I made sackcloth my clothing, my, I became a byword to them. They're, they're like gossiping about me. See, within a Jewish tradition, fasting and sackcloth are ritualistic symbols of sincere sadness. Right? This is a sign of sincere godliness. And even David's most godly actions here are turned into an occasion of mockery. And all of this seems so painful and so unjust. Listen, if you were to come to my house and just visit, surprise visit, be a little bit of a zoo. Be honest, got four kids. We're a little bit rowdy. We're not always tidy. So, you know, I would go to my son and I'd say, Micah, would you please pick up this mess? And, you know, if he made it, he'll grudgingly do it, of course. He's a good kid. Now, if I asked Micah to pick up the mess of his sisters, what would he say? He'd say, I did not make this mess. It is unfair that I have to pick it up. See, Micah is afraid of paying the consequences of others' actions. Am I forced to restore what I did not steal, right? It's unfair. It's unjust. Can you hear that kind of coming through? What we're seeing in Psalm 69 is no ordinary, ritualistic, robotic prayer, is it? This man is being honest about his pain, and and he's expressing his heartbreak to God. And he talks to God like a friend who he really believes understands his pain. Do you know God like that? Do you know God like that to be able to talk like that? To, to be able to say, God, I know you. I know that you're king. I know that you're the Lord. I know that you're sovereign. And I can't square that with what's going on here. I can't make sense of that. Where are you? Shouldn't you be do- doing something about this, Lord? I'm sad. Why aren't you coming? Why aren't you hearing out my cries? Come. I'm sad. Do something. I can't square this. I can't make this fix. What, why won't you act, God? feels unjust. That's lament. That takes faith. And embodying that kind of tenderness and honest vividly in our prayers and our songs, it's actually one of the primary ingredients from keeping our inner lives from rotting. It keeps you from going cynical or cold or distant. keeps you from giving up. You see, because that fight, that lament is what actually gives you new breath. Lament is actually this action of faith. Going to a God who you believe is a friend who will hear you. Lament. But this brings us to a second section. In this next section, what we see is the poet's very specific anger towards these perpetrators of injustice, against his enemies, Starting in verses 22 through 28, we begin a portion of the Psalms that is called imprecation. Now, that's a fancy word, isn't it? Imprecation. What is that? Well, imprecation means this. It is the act 
of cursing a person. Now, if you want to know what I'm talking about, look at that strong language and that curse. Verse 22, he says, let their own table become a snare. Verse 24, let your burning anger overtake them. Verse 25, may their camp be a desolation, punishment upon punishment. Verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Snuff them out, God. Do it. These are strong words. These are violent words. These are holy and ordained words. Now, you need, and I need, a little bit of theology to know what to do with these kinds of words. So let me explain. Imprecation in the Psalms is not, listen, it is not a personal attack. In fact, imprecation is never appropriate for personal prayer and private prayer. The psalmist here is speaking on behalf of the community, not as an individual, as it rests upon God's promise that he will bless those who bless you, but he will also curse those who curse you. See, God will, his promises will come about. This is not a Christian version of a voodoo doll that you employ when someone crosses you. That is not what's going on here. This is not about personal retribution. But oh my goodness, Trinity, these words, even violent pleas for justice, they're so important to be on our mouths. And and, and let me just say this up, up front. Because in our society, we are beginning to tout and privilege the so-called progressives in our culture. And, the, and, the, and that category of people, they look at these parts of the Bible and they say, see, the Bible promotes violence. Say, oh, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I don't believe in the Bible anymore. These, look at all these violent prayers and these violent stories. See, right? And they point them out to us. And all of us, you and I, we're kind of on our heels when they say this, right? We're a little bit embarrassed. We're trying to protect God's reputation. Have you ever felt that? You know what I'm talking about, right? Listen, the God of the Bible is a lion, and he does not need us to protect his reputation. He is good, but he is not safe. You know why? Because he is real. Now, with that in mind, Why is it important for the poet's anger, then, to be on our collective lips? Why is this in the Bible, and why should we kind of sing this kind of stuff together? Well, here's why. Now, follow this with me. I want you to think about the riots that began in Minneapolis last week, and have actually continued in all the major cities, and it's even in Europe now. They're all over the place. Why are people rioting? Now, the psychology of rioting goes something like this. It's a little bit simple, but... As Martin Luther King once described, riots are the voice of the unheard. And what does that mean? It means this, that we all live in a society, and that society is not principally a list of laws with corresponding authorities. A society is an outward manifestation of an an invisible social contract. That is, we all believe that if we give ourselves to this contract, if we do our part, It will produce a system that will take care of us, it will protect us, and we'll all join in its prosperity. But what happens when a certain sector of the society does not think that the social contract is working? 
what happens when they begin to believe that even if they do their part, the system won't protect them and won't make them prosperous? I'll tell you what they do. They break the social contract and they take care of themselves because they believe that the social contract's not going to pay out for them. And so what do they do? They loot and they take what they want. Now listen to me, because protesting and dissenting is an important part of what makes our country exceptional. That is not breaking the social contract. What I'm talking about here is violent riots and looting. See, listen, the peace in our country has never been about the presence of a police force. It has always been about the majority of us believing that it is in our own best interest to give ourselves civically to one another. And some people have come to believe that, that don't come, have come to believe that that doesn't work anymore. And so what do they do? They become violent and they violently pursue their own interests. And so what are then that sort of elite class, those progressives saying about it? They say, oh, 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 that's good violence, right? That's good violence. For some people, in the case of African-Americans, they have been so marginalized and so oppressed that violence is their voice. And their voice, they say, needs to be dignified. And so the logic is this. The question is not why do they violently riot? The question is, why would they not violently riot? All right, are you seeing the logic there? Here's what I want you to hear from me. Why is there an incredibly robust black Christian witness imploring people, begging people to not riot? And, and I'm not just talking about Martin Luther King who was so locked in, so dialed into nonviolence. I'm talking modern-day black witness, Y. Plummer, Charlie Dates, Mike Higgins, Anthony Bradley. Well, why, why? Why are they saying, don't do this? Why, if even if the system has not served them, why would they not violently riot? Here's why. It's because they are Christians. And let me tell you what that means. It means that they absolutely believe that God, through Jesus Christ, is everyone's authority. And he can and he will exact perfect justice. Not proximate justice, perfect justice. God sees all the angles. He has all the camera angles. He, he doesn't even need DNA evidence. He never misses. He makes no mistakes. Perfect justice. And and listen, this isn't just some Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, Paul's going to echo this in Romans 12. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God will not be mocked. His justice will prevail. He will perfectly, and dare I say it, even violently enact justice. And because we can sing these words together, not as personal revenge, but to God on behalf of the community, when we say, God, snuff out evildoers. God, please bring punishment upon punishment those who think they're getting away with things, right? Precisely because we can trust God to do it, then we 
don't have to take revenge into our own hands. We don't have to be violent. And in fact, violence shows a lack of faith, you see. See, violence is for the hopeless and the despairing. But our anger is vocalized as we entrust ourselves to God, who is perfectly and even violently just. And when our prayers begin to embody the servant's anger, it keeps us from being violent. And it keeps our inner lives from becoming resentful, hopeless, and to rot. It protects us from settling into cynicism and resentment because we know that he is the Lord and he will do what is right in his own eyes. You see how that works? All right. I have uh, said a lot today. Let me quickly summarize. Psalm 69 is a psalm in which the poet expresses his pain and his anger. And both of those are so important and redemptive for us to express for the well-being of our inner lives, right? So I said this at the beginning, right? That, that Psalm 69 gives us really important words that our hearts aren't used to saying. God is using David's prayer to shape our inner lives. It's bringing vitality and hope to our souls through lament and even through imprecation. And it keeps our souls from rotting inside when we, kind of, when we pray these things and lament together. But not only is this prayer seen through David, we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what do I mean by that? The New Testament records the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When the New Testament, when the New Testament authors reread Psalm 69, you know, the, you know what they said? They're like, what in the world? These words could have come from Jesus' own mouth. Right? He is the true righteous one, though perfectly innocent, suffered. Jesus' life is filled with words of soulful and faith-filled sorrow. God, let this cup pass from me, he says. I'm so sad. God, why have you abandoned me? I know you're there. This doesn't square with what I'm feeling, Lord. I'm so sad, he lamented. Jesus was hung on a cross between two thieves. He was the only innocent one, and yet he's the one being punished. And you can almost hear him say, what I did not steal, must I now restore? He's sad. And he doesn't just lament. He has indignant anger, too. Shortly before he was crucified, he walked into Jerusalem, and he pronounced curses among all the religious authorities, those people who sought to oppress and marginalize others for their own gain. Woe to you, he screamed. Holy judgment is coming. That's what woe means. Woe to you. Judgment is coming. And every time that Jesus would perform a miracle, right, he's always healing or fixing something, except one time, one time he walks up to a fig tree and he curses it and it withers and it dies. And it's as if to say, God will not be mocked. God will judge righteously and even violently. And yet, even though the system completely failed Jesus, he was unjustly accused, mockery of a trial, condemned and executed. He never once became violent. And in fact, 
he willingly accepted the violence. And they hung him on a tree. And as he was hanging on that cross, in John 19, he tells us that they took this hyssop branch, put a sponge on the end of it, soaked it in sour wine, and they put it up to his mouth. And at this, everyone knew Psalm 69 is about Jesus. Verse 21, the poet says, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Trinity, this psalm points us to Jesus. Now listen closely. This world is violent. And education will not fix our violence. It just makes us smarter, violent people. We are not basically good people. We are all naturally enemies of God. But Jesus took all the injustice to include the injustice that you and I have propagated ourselves and have been complicit in. And he took it upon himself. And by his stripes, we are healed. There is no other way. You must know this Jesus and give yourself to him. Because then there will either be, you will either accept the violence on Jesus at the cross or you will receive violence on the day of judgment. There is no other way. And so, as we walk with him, let us allow Psalm 69 to give us words of lament and words of anger until we see Jesus in them. And let us be saved by Jesus through faith, right? The problem isn't just the violence out there, it's here. We need Jesus to save us. Let us be saved through faith. But then let us also be like Jesus, absorbing the pain of others, perhaps fixing a mess that we did not make until there is healing in our hearts and healing in our land. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Psalm 69 is so hard. But don't let us move too fast, lest we rot on the inside. Come, Spirit, give us words to express our hurt, to express our anger, knowing, trusting that you see all the angles. Lord, have mercy on us. Don't let us grow numb. Don't let us move into a lack of faith or resentment. Give us new life, for we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a moment to allow these beautiful, sacred words to move in our hearts, to stir in our hearts. Mm-hmm.